Welcome to Boot Rap, the voice of the Bootstrap Network. The Bootstrap Network serves entrepreneurs around the globe. When people think about the product and a certain price range, the thought stays with them even for the next decision and the next decision and the next decision. So I'm a marketer and I have kind of an interesting lens that I'm looking through this at, which is why the Bootstrap Marketing Group is the sponsor of this, because I am going to take him into this um, kind of realm of how do we apply this as marketers and business owners who are trying to get our message out. Um, I was particular, the first chapter for me was the strongest because it talked about a couple of things that I didn't know about, even as an expert on marketing and how you present things. There's a concept called uh, uh, decoy or decoys and a concept uh, called uh, relativity. Um, and I didn't, uh, the latter relativity, in terms of creating a context for your message, um, is something that I actually earned my living on. Um, so I was particularly interested in that first chapter. But he uh, goes into, um, well, I'll just give you an idea, the, the, title, the title's give some idea of what he's talking about. So truth and relativity, I just talked about decoys and how people make decisions based on what other people have. So um, if I have a small circle of friends all that have pretty much the same stuff I do, I don't feel so much like I need to have other things. But if I start looking out and I say, oh, this guy's got the better iPod or this guy's got the better car, um, I begin to value things based on what they have that I don't. Um, the fallacy of supply and demand talks about um, how pricing is really arbitrary. And we were just talking about that. I think in the art world, that's a place to really leverage this. And it is people will um, assume the value of something based on how you present it. And the, and the roughest cut of that is putting a price next to your product. If they don't have a context for that, they will assume that that's the value of it. And uh, the, so that's called an anchor. And there's the he, we, he talks in the book about setting anchors and also breaking prior anchors. So if somebody has paid $24.95 for a big, beautiful piece of artwork at Walmart, they've kind of anchored to that. And they may have trouble paying thousands of dollars for this. The cost of the, the cost of zero cost, a good discussion about free and the power of free. I really like that one. Yeah, that, I like that too. That was yeah. The cost of social norms, and this was interesting to me because um, we seem to live in one of two worlds, social norms and market norms. And as soon as you introduce money into the equation, our behavior changes. And he does an experiment where he um, asks people to do a very mundane task for free, asks people to do it for 50 cents, and asks people to do it for $5 each time they do it. And the free people were actually the most productive in terms of getting more of these activities done. The influence of arousal. This was an interesting chapter because it's it's about how our perceptions change when we are aroused. And specifically, this test was how our opinions change, our decisions change when we're sexually aroused. Very interesting set of experiments there. The problem with procrastination and self-control. We're all aware of it. Why? Um, how do dates affect our behavior? If we're allowed to set the dates or if somebody else sets the dates for us, how do we perform? 
high price of ownership. If we own something, we value it more. And I'm going to go into talking about, I'm asking some questions about testimonial and word of mouth and how those kind of transfer the passion of the owner of something to the person that doesn't own it yet. Keeping doors open, how if we have lots of options, we try to keep all of our options open. For those of us that are selling services or products that have multiple options, how do we prevent people from getting stuck trying to figure out which door to go in? The effect of expectations, which is how irrationally what we expect about something we generally make true in our minds. The power of price. How does cheap aspirin uh, not, not, why is it that cheap aspirin doesn't seem to work as well as expensive aspirin even though the ingredients are the same? Uh, the context of our character talks about dishonesty and when we're dishonest and why we're dishonest. Uh, part two of that is, is how cash makes us more honest. Cash. <coughs> Beer and free lunches. Um, and that's kind of the wrap-up. So that gives you an idea of what the book's about in, in a synopsis. I'd be interested in that journey. How, why this topic? How do you get into this? And maybe the book explains. Yeah, it talks a little bit about kind of his... So he actually is uh, the victim of a severe burn from an explosion. And he was in recovery for three years. And so that started, I guess he had a lot of time to think because you know he's largely immobile for a large part of that time. Um, but he talks in here about how the decisions the nurses were making that were common knowledge actually may not have been true. Mm -hmm. And he uses the example of when they were taking his bandages off, the nurses were convinced that quick ripoff mm -hmm. was the way to do it. But him being the victim could tell them very clearly, take it off slow, it helps me deal. So um, how was it that they seemed to have learned that? And that was the first irrational kind of thing that he was able to mull. And then, you know, he dove off into a, a string of very interesting formal and informal experiments. Was he a university professor when he was born? You know what? I don't know that. That would be an interesting question. Did he convince the nurses? I don't think it tells us. Later on in the book, he says that he doesn't think that he's ever had any long-term effect on the change there, but the book does go into, so after each of these conclusions he talks about, he does go into how we could make changes in policy and how uh, industry could change to take advantage of this irrationality um, to solve problems. So he, he takes it from these experiments that he's doing and then he does offer some opinions about everything from the ideal credit card to how um, um, medical policy in the United States could be changed to, to to um, encompass and understand the way we actually do things. He does. Um, it was an explosion uh, of a substance that I'm not familiar with. So um, maybe Israelis are familiar with it. Some sort of a uh, some sort of a flare exploded. Is, is what I took away from it. No, he wasn't. It sounded like it was either a part of his job or he was too close to somebody who wasn't doing their job. Well, tonight we have a very literary bootstrap marketing meeting. Since spending three years in recovery from severe burns, Dan Ariely has fashioned himself as an observer of human nature and especially of how humans are influenced by irrationality when supposedly making logical decisions. 
Tonight, we are going to ask Dan to lend us his insight into human behavior and to help us solve some of the problems we solve every day as marketers, businessmen, and in general, persuaders trying to influence our prospects' decisions. Dan is the Alfred P. Sloan Professor of Behavioral Economics at MIT, where he holds a joint appointment between MIT's Media Laboratory and the Sloan School of Management. He's also a researcher at the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston and a visiting professor at Duke University, where I believe he's calling us from now. Ariely wrote his book while he was a fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. And in addition to his book, you can read his blog at www.predictablyirrational.com. So um, having gotten the formalities out of the way, Dan, um, I wanted to make sure that you were comfortable with us taking us down a pretty uh, um, severe marketing track. Sure. And great, great. So um, I'm going to dive right in here. You know, for the, the first book, the chapter of the book offered, for me, one of the most interesting case studies and draws out in clear lines the technique that you call a decoy. And on page three, you start with a helpful fundamental observation that people don't know what they want unless they see it in context. Would you care to explain the experiment and the results to us real quickly? Yeah, so, so it actually is a, is a point about multiple, multiple experiments. And the thing is that we keep on making decisions in daily life, and we, we feel that because we make so many decisions, we actually know what we want and what we don't want. I mean, after all, we wake up every morning, we open the closet, we decide what we want to wear and what we don't want to wear, we open the refrigerator, we decide what we want to eat and what we don't want to eat. So we have this very strong sense of agency that we, we actually know what, what we want. And the question is, of course, to what degree do we really know what we want. And there's a couple of observations about this. One of them is that it's actually incredibly hard to make decisions when money is involved. So think about something simple like coffee. You know, we all drink coffee, we all pay for coffee, we all have done it many times. But the truth is that if I ask you how much pleasure are you getting from a cup of coffee in terms of money, it's very hard to say. Now, you can tell me how much a cup of coffee costs. You can tell me how much you paid for the most expensive cup in your life, how much Starbucks charges. But to really tell me what's the real value from a pleasure perspective of a cup of coffee is very, very hard. Now, if making decisions is so, is so hard and difficult and complex, what do we do? Because we have to make decisions. Well, it turns out that one of the tricks we uh, resort to is the tricks of relativity. We compare things to other things, not to everything, just to those things that are easy to compare at the moment, and based on this relative comparison, we make a decision. Actually, this being the week of the Olympics, I can give you an Olympic uh, example. Who do you think is happier? People who win the bronze medal or the silver medal? Not on the day that they win it, but a few months afterwards. Well, it turns out that the bronze medal uh, winners are actually happier. Why? Because of who they compare themselves to. The people who won the silver compare themselves to the gold and say repeatedly, oh, if I only got there. The people who got the, the bronze often say, oh, I could have gotten nothing. And as a consequence, they actually end up being, being happier. So, so this is basically the key of relativity. Another very common thing in marketing is something that says sale. Why would, would the rational consumer care about what something cost in the past? 
It's a crazy idea that my value for something depends on what it cost in the past. But of course, the reason for that is that we can't compare things in absolute terms, so we compare them in relative terms. What to? Well, one of the things we compare them to is how much they cost last week. And as a consequence, sale actually does matter because now it's cheaper than what it used to be, providing a very simple relative evaluation. Uh, now, the decoy effect is a particular version of this relativity. It's a particularly disturbing version of it because what it means is that we can add an option that nobody wants and nevertheless it would influence how people choose. So consider the following. Uh, by the way, can you hear me well through the phone? I guess not. Everybody is nodding, so oh, okay. So okay, nodding is not very helpful, but good, good to know. Um, so imagine I offer you a choice between a weekend in Paris, all expenses paid, or a weekend in Rome, all expenses paid. This, this presumably would be a difficult choice because Rome and Paris are so different. Now, some people might have a strong preference for one over the other, but let's say in general there, there are people who, who are conflicted to some to some degree. Now. What if I added an alternative that nobody wanted? I say, we can in Rome all expenses paid, we can in Paris all expenses paid, or having your car stolen. Presumably, adding this option of having your car stolen should not influence your decision between Rome and Paris. After all, it's not really helping in any, in any way. It's not informative. There's all kinds of terrible things that you don't want to happen to you. <laughs> but the fact is that if this option that nobody wants is not having your car stolen, but instead it's an option that is similar to one of the two options, but not the other. It is an option for Rome, a weekend in Rome, all expenses paid, not including the free coffee in the morning. Now, in a sense, Rome without coffee is like your car stolen because it's unappealing. <laughs> but what it, so nobody chooses it. But what it also does is it makes Rome with coffee looks more appealing. And as a consequence of this comparison between Rome without coffee, <clears throat> Rome with coffee looks more attractive. And it looks more attractive not only relative to Rome without coffee, but in general and overall, even better than Paris. So basically that's, that's the story. And the story is that in a relative comparison, and because that's what people do, you could add to a choice set options that nobody wants, that nobody would choose, but nevertheless, they influence how choices are being, are being made. So as, as business owners and marketers, if I was to just be the bald-faced capitalist, the manipulator, it would seem to make sense that, I know that we have an artist here, that if I'm selling my art, I might offer the, uh, the art without a frame, the art with a frame, and then because I really want to sell the art with a frame because I have a higher profit margin on that, I might have the art with a frame but no free delivery. Mm -hmm. So in doing that, I've created a slightly less desirable choice, which will not be chosen by anybody or very few. Um, and... Uh, we think that they're going to choose more people that would have chosen the art unframed will choose the art framed with delivery because we put that decoy point in there. That's right. But, 
That's right. Now that 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 would look uh, also extremely um, odd <coughs> to have the same two art, one with delivery and one without, <coughs> for the same price. Um, but but nevertheless, it should have this effect. It would be even better if you could choose something that didn't look as odd like this. So you could say, <coughs> here is here is the deal. You could get. A large, you know, it's very strange, but in art, basically, my understanding is that price goes by the square inch or by the square foot. It's very much like a payment per size uh, within an artist. Bigger, bigger is kind of better. <clears throat> so, so you could have you could have a, a small a small painting for a small amount, a, a large painting for a larger amount, or you could get both a large painting and a small painting. Today, there's a special deal for the same price as the large painting. I see. Now, the large so painting in this case is the decoy. Exactly, exactly. Right? So, um, so, so, so basically you say, look, we have a special deal that you could get both of those for this, for this price. There's a slightly less um, difficult version of this. Let's just assume for a second that in art, uh, the price is $100 per square foot. I know it's kind of an awful thing to say about art, but let's just assume. It doesn't have to be art. It could be coffee or whatever you want. So $100 per square foot. So you can, sell, you can say, look, I have a picture that is one square foot and $100, a picture that is seven or eight square foot for $800, and a picture that is 10 square foot for $850. Now, now it's not dominated. All the options are viable, but the eight foot for $800 makes the one for... 10 foot and 850 looks much more appealing in relative terms. Now, it's not really inferior in all possible dimensions, but it changes the, the ratio between the two attributes such that the top one all of a sudden looks much better. I see. Um, so if we talk a little bit more about relativity, um, you, you make the case that uh, we, we tend to desire things that other people have. Um, and that the, the kind of the circle of influence that we um, treat ourselves to, in other words, the, the, the breadth of the, the associates that we compare ourselves to and what we have to, um, <clears throat> as it gets larger, we tend to become more dissatisfied and want more things because there are more people involved and people uh, who uh, may have uh, more expensive or more desirable or more luxurious, whatever we consider desirable. That's right. Um, so... Uh, as marketers, or probably more accurately as advertisers, if we, um, in our communications, kind of broaden the circle for our clients, if we can show them uh, with more people with desirable items, uh, especially our items, that we uh, would tend to increase their uh, irrational dissatisfaction with what they have and, uh, to some extent, hopefully with our competitors. Is that, is that a fair um, use of that? Yeah, I'm not sure how the competitors uh, come into here, but, but the, the idea is that we just don't know how happy we are, uh, like we don't know many other things, until we get some relative evaluation of that. So I can tell you on a personal level that, you know, academics don't make much money, and I was perfectly happy being an academic, and <clears throat> all my friends were academic, and I had no, no idea about life outside of academia. And, and one day, some consulting company invited me to the retreat. My goodness, this was a blow to my uh, understanding of the world. 
you know, the, the way they were living was so uh, incredible. Uh, it was just very, very difficult to think about my life after that as being reasonable. Uh, the kind of activities they were doing, the kind of hotels they were staying, uh, the kind of food they were eating, uh, wine they were drinking. I mean, the whole thing was dramatically different from the quality of life that I was quite happy with. You know, I was um, a PhD student for many years, and I thought that getting, you know, whatever, $20,000 a year was great. And then I got paid a bit more as a <clears throat> as a professor. But, but kind of uh, orders of magnitude less than people who are, um, practicing kind of, kind of business, uh, you know, executives. And all of a sudden, it made me incredibly unhappy. Um, uh, you know, luckily, I thought about it. I, I decided what to do. But, but it, still, it still creates a big, a big contrast, contrast in my life. Now, the question is, how do you want to use that? And, and there are two ways to use it. One is to think about how do you make people less happy and want more. The second is, how do you get people to keep being happy and, and not wanting more? And it actually depends on what products you're selling. Right? So if you're selling the luxury goods, uh, there's, there's one issue there. But if you're selling the non-luxury goods, there's a separate issue. You don't want people to compare themselves too, too high, high up and go away from your products. I see. I see. Okay. I mean, think of Hyundai. Think of Hyundai or something like that. Right, if people kept on looking at all the all the people with BMWs all the time, who would buy a Hyundai? I see. So you want to think about what you want them to compare themselves to. Okay. So um, what I'm taking from that is craft our stories carefully so that the circles are the right size for our products. That's right. The right okay. size, the right magnitude. Exactly. Well, so in Chapter 2, that, this one's called The Fallacy of Supply and Demand. And um, I'm on, I had a personal question here. So <clears throat> my business is, is online conversion, which is converting traffic to leads and sales. And we have a debate going about whether businesses who sell to other businesses should put their pricing on their websites. So in this chapter, you, um, you talk about anchors uh -huh. and how we can associate value with objects by providing these anchors. And in one of your experiments, the anchor was as arbitrary as the last two numbers of somebody's social security number. That's right. Um, given what you know about that, help me, help me parse this question about whether we should put pricing on our websites for higher-end services, uh, you know, with the danger being that business A put its, put its price up and then uh, business B is less expensive. Does that mean that they will see business B as less, as lower quality? Yeah. So, so first of all, does does everybody in the group know that the chapter and the experiment? Uh, actually, not. So, if we need, if you feel like we need to add a little more background to that, please feel free. So, so let me let me first add, add the background, and I'll ask you some more questions about your particular setting. So, so let me let me say three things. The first one is here is the experiment. Uh, I go to a big class of students, and by the way, I've done it many times, and I pass around six products: some wine, some. Um, books, some chocolates, some computer accessories. Everybody looks at them, examine those. And then I ask people to tell me what are the last two digits of the social security number. So everybody, everybody writes down uh, the last two digits of the social security number. And uh, so for example, what, uh, can you just, just think for each of you for a second what, what it's yours. Okay, so you all know what, what's yours. Mine is 79. 
<coughs> everybody writes those, and then we say, make this number into a price. So in my case, it will be $79. And then you go ahead, and you say, would you pay this price for these products, $79. For each of them, I say, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. That's a hypothetical question. And now I say, now we'll have a real auction. It's for real. The highest winner will pay. We'll get the product. It will be like an eBay auction. Everybody knows the rules. They submit their bid. We find the highest winner. They pay. They get it. Everybody goes home happy. And then we look at the correlation between people's social security numbers and their willingness to bid. And, and it turns out that people with higher social security number end up paying much higher prices. Now, why? <clears throat> of course, it's not because when they were born, the people from social security number knew if they would be stingy or not and kind of tagged them with the last two digits of the social security number to indicate it. But it's because when people think about the product in a certain price range, the thought stays with them even for the next decision and the next decision and the next decision. And the basic model we have for this is something called self-herding, where because preferences are so difficult to compute, what we do is we look at our past decisions, we assume they were rational and reasonable, and we keep on doing those again and again and again. So, so think, for example, about Starbucks. <clears throat> Imagine that it's 10 years ago, and you walk down the streets in Boston. You've been happily drinking coffee at Dunkin' Donuts for 50 cents a cup for a long time. But today, you're hungry, you're thirsty, you're caffeinated, deprived, you're running to some annoying errand. You see Starbucks, and you walk in. You walk in, you're shocked by the price. You never imagined coffee could be this expensive, but you, you buy it anyway. You're there. The coffee is perfectly fine. You leave the store. Now, three days later, you pass by Starbucks again. After all, they're in many corners. Do you remember how you felt three days ago when you decided to go in? Of course not. We have a very hard time remembering anything about our emotions. But what do you remember? You remember walking in. You remember your actions, even though you don't remember your preferences. So you say to yourself, if I walked in before, it must have been a good decision. Therefore, let me walk again. And you walk again and again and again and again until you stop thinking whether this is a rational decision for you or not, a reasonable decision or not. You just assume that because you've done it for so many times, <clears throat> it has to be reasonable. That's, that's part one of the story. Part two of the story you might ask is, how could Starbucks ever created this? After all, we had the previous experience with Dunkin' Donuts. We were all paying 50 cents for a cup of coffee. Why all of a sudden at 2.50? And, and the secret here is that Starbucks wanted to make sure that we don't compare Starbucks to Dunkin' Donuts directly. Imagine that Starbucks was set up exactly like Dunkin' Donuts with the same colors logo and the same store setup. The only thing they would do is they would have a much better coffee. How much more do you think people would be willing to pay for that? Maybe a little bit, maybe 75 cents or 50, but I don't think they would have gone for 250. So instead, what Starbucks wanted to do was not to be compared directly with Dunkin' Donuts. This is the same as when you go to a restaurant and you look at the wine prices, uh, you probably never thought to yourself for, that for the differences between these two particular wines, you could buy four gallons of milk. Right? We just don't think this way. We don't compare wine to milk. We compare wine to wine and milk to milk and so on. So how, how did Starbucks get themselves to be like wine and not compare to, to Dunkin' Donuts, they basically did all kinds of things. They told us about single bean coffee. 
They sold French presses. They had Italian and French pastries. They had no donuts and no muffins and no chocolate chip cookies. And, and on top of that, they invented a new language for ordering coffee. And, you know, if you came and you said, I want to smoke coffee, they would say, we have no idea what, what you're talking about. We have all these other things here. And all of this might look superficial, but it's actually incredibly important because it, it makes sure that people would not compare Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks directly. By the way, now that we're 10 years later or 11 years later, um, Starbucks has no problem. They're not compared directly to Dunkin' Donuts. We've all bought coffee in Starbucks a lot. And as a consequence, they start selling muffins and chocolate chip cookies, and uh, they're even discussing donuts. They could have never got away with it 11 years ago, but now that our preferences and ideas about what is reasonable and not have changed, uh, they can make these changes as well. And I imagine now, that some of, the, uh, some of the other coffee shops, that's coffee chains that are emerging or that have emerged, uh, have the trouble that they are similar to Starbucks, and so we are anchored to whatever Starbucks price is, and so that becomes a, a governor. Um, that's right. But, but by the way, the other stores are, are benefiting from it because, right, they've established such a high price that it helped the whole industry. I mean, even people spend more money on coffee at home. The whole category has been elevated. I see. Dramatically. So as, because as, do you have a recommendation for, for Dunkin' Donuts? What should they do? <clears throat> well, Dunkin' Donuts basically did the right thing. They, they, followed, they followed Starbucks by by increasing their prices and increasing the quality of their coffee. Now, I don't know how much the quality of the coffee actually matters uh, for, for most people. You know, frankly, there's a story. Um, my father deals with commercial food, and he told me that the early days at Starbucks, um, what, what he heard was that they bought the worst coffee in the world. Uh, these were beans from Africa that even the Israelis, and I'm Israeli, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say this, even the Israelis who make Turkish coffee, which is the worst coffee quality in the world, refuse to buy these beans. But, but the person who was selling it to Starbucks without them knowing basically loaded these awful beans on them. And as a consequence, for a long time, they sold really terrible coffee. Uh, of course, nobody, nobody complained and nobody knew. Um, now... In terms of Dunkin' Donuts, Dunkin' Donuts, I think, are doing the right thing. They're basically following in their footsteps. They're not trying to, to portray themselves as, as Starbucks because they can't achieve that, um, that image. But they are increasing, I think, their coffee and their coffee prices to, to fill the lower, the lower tier as much as I they can. Read an article. I read an article that Dunkin' Donuts made 50% <clears throat> back in a year, made 50% or more of their profits from the sale of coffee. That's right. That was interesting. Because the margins are increasing so much on coffee, sure. thanks to Starbucks. Sure. Uh, by the way, Dunkin' do, uh, Donuts have an advantage over Starbucks because Starbucks is actually mostly selling milk. And, and Dunkin' Donuts are mostly selling coffee. And as a consequence, if you actually look at the margins, coffee is much better than selling than milk. I mean, if you have a coffee drink with a lot of milk, it's actually much more expensive because water is very cheap, milk is very expensive both in terms of preparation and cost. So the lesson then from this for us is that uh, Seth Godin talks about something called Purple Cows, which are just remarkable products, remarkable offers, and Starbucks' use of ambiance is certainly an example of that. 
that we as business owners and marketers need to have something that essentially breaks any anchors that may, people may have about our category of product by having something that's remarkable or, or unique, just as Starbucks does. Would that be a fair assessment? That's, that's fair to say. And it's also important to say that the opportunity is really at the beginning of the process. So when you introduce something, that's your opportunity. Later on, the anchor has been set. It's very, very hard to change. So well, think, a, for example, on. sorry? No, go ahead. Think, for example, of something wonderful like TiVo. I don't know how many of you have TiVo. I think it's a fantastic product. Um, in fact, I just realized how fantastic it was because we, we got the new cable thing and they gave us the cable DVR, the video recorder. I can't believe how awful this thing is compared to TiVo. TiVo is just fantastic. The human interface, the ability, the, the time-saving. Imagine two universes, one in which TiVo was introduced at $200 and one it was introduced at $1,000. First of all, in the first one, it will be compared naturally to a VCR. In the second one, it will be naturally compared to a home computer machine. And of course, TiVo is somewhere between those two. It's a Linux machine. It can do all kinds of things in the home. <clears throat> it also records. But now imagine that these two worlds decided to move the, the price of TiVo to $500. In which of those two worlds would TiVo be more successful? In reality, the benefit of TiVo is the same. The cost is the same. It's now $500. But the argument is that in the world it was introduced at $1,000, it will be looked as a fantastic deal. In the world it was introduced at $200, it's an awful deal. And this is why it's particularly important to think about how you start new services, what prices you give, because those prices are going to stick for a long time in consumers' minds. It will be very, very hard to change it. You know, one, of the, one of the tragedies of the, of the initial Internet excitement was that they gave everything for free. The, the logic was that I'll give you something for free, you'll use it, and then you'll understand how to map the benefits into money. And you'll say, oh, of course, this is so valuable, I'll pay $19.95 for this. By the way, it's odd how the values of everything is always $19.95. <clears throat> um, but anyway, that, that was the logic. But, but it assumes that people can actually experience something and know how to map it to money. That, that I think, is a crazy assumption. People can experience something, they can have an idea of how <clears throat> valuable it is, but it doesn't mean they can map it into money. And now you start charging them something. They'll say, yeah, 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 that's a different decision. Now we're talking a different, a different story, and all of a sudden they're not interested. <clears throat> and that basically is the reason why uh, most of the cost of the Internet is in advertising, because we started with everything being for free. I see. And that's, that's an issue with a lot of entrepreneurs, especially here in Austin, about who are uh, offering online services uh, about how to make the freemium model work for them. And what I'm hearing from you is uh, that's probably not the best approach. You do talk in the book about the, the value of uh, trials and demos, but you put them in the context of discounted trials. Um, <coughs> don't talk about free trials. And that's right. I think free trials are very dangerous. But, but again, it's a question of how you frame it in consumers' minds. So, so one of the things you can think about is how do you make something free financially but not free psychologically? <clears throat> so let me give you an, an example. Imagine I opened a new, a new service and I said, look, the cost of this is $19.95 if you want to join. However, I really value your opinion. So if, if for the first month you'll tell me, you'll answer 10 questions about how much you value this service, I will pay you back $19.95, the fee for this. 
Now, with this, what you've done is you've, you've told me that this is a useful service for 1995. Uh, it, hasn't, it doesn't cost me anything, but you also told me that you value my opinion. Now, you might never do anything with my responses to you, but it's a much healthier approach if you actually want to start charging something later. Because moving from 1995 and paying you back for your opinion is a, is a much easier hurdle compared to charging nothing and all of a sudden wanting to start charging money. I see. So um, that there's an old yarn in marketing that you can always uh, lower the price, but you can never raise it. It sounds like you're um, mm -hmm. backing up that. Yep. Um, we have a, a question from the uh, from the audience here, I believe. Uh, yes. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to our group this evening. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. And uh, I have to say that I, I love watching your YouTube videos. They're, they're <laughs> very entertaining. I love them, especially the one with your Apple iPhone in your bathroom. Okay, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> not, not the one uh, about have, the benefits of getting divorced, right? That's the one from today. Uh, yeah, I, I did. I watched that one actually just about an hour ago before we started. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was very interesting. Oh, and the, the Dan interviewing Dan uh, Ariely was, was fantastic. <laughs> so if I, if I may, I have two questions. I'll ask them in succession. They're unrelated. And then I'll set the phone down and let the group listen to the response. Mm -hmm. My first question is, in any of your studies with your students, was there any difference between male and female mm -hmm. uh, as far as responses and their level of irrationality? Uh -huh. and, and my second question is, as a, as a person who's in business, what are the three things that you think that someone could take away from, from your research in order to, to use them effectively in, in marketing and selling to their clients? <clears throat> Thank you. Okay. okay, so first of all, thanks, and, and thanks for the question. So first of all, about gender differences. Um, I believe that in some things there are gender differences, None of the things in, in my book, and in fact, none of the research I have done, uh, we've ever found, found um, differences. Now, I'll give you the one, the one exception for this, is that we've done some research on sexual arousal and, and emotion and its role in that. And, and the big difference we find between males and females there was that we had a very easy time recruiting males to, have, to participate in a study with sexual arousal. We had an awful time recruiting females. Um, and, and because of that, we, had, we, we didn't actually carry out, carry out the research. Um, this, this was actually difficult, partially because a lot of females um, said that they don't, they, 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 they don't masturbate regularly, so they, don't, they can't get to arousal uh, by, by masturbating, and, and as a consequence, uh, we, had, we had a problem using them. But, but in general, we don't find many differences. Now, I'm not saying there aren't any, but, but we just haven't found them yet. Um, in terms of the, oh, oh no, I'll say one more thing is, you know, usually we look at kind of very basic things. We look at things that are kind of almost at the perceptual level in terms of decision making. I'm sure at the higher level, when you look at social influence, when you look at other things, there are more complex issues that uh, differentiate gender. It's just at the level of analysis that we do and the kind of experiments at this level, I don't think there are real differences. Um, in the same way that we don't have differences between how males and females, you know, see the color red and, and so on. In terms of the three things to take away, um, 
for, for me, the, the most important thing is to realize that we have irrational tendencies. And, you know, I, I list 13 of them in the book, but of course there are many more. It's just the beginning. Um, more important than, than we have irrational tendencies is that our intuitions are wrong. And I think often uh, the field of marketing and even more advertising, um, really people have very strong intuitions um, that are not necessarily correct. But if you understand and, and truly accept the idea that there are mistakes that we make and we have bad intuitions about it, it means we need to make to put very different emphasis on testing. And that's something that I think people in marketing and advertising do very badly these days. So, so let me give an example. Think about something like medicine. You know, for many centuries, medicine was awful. Not only they were not curing anybody, they were killing people with all kinds of medical practices. And the reason was that nobody was doing experiments. If you're a physician, you know, in the 17th century, and one of your physician's friends came to you and said, hey, Joe, here is a leech. I just saw it working miracles on one of my patients. Why don't you try it? You would try the leeches. And not only you would try them, you would try them on every patient that seemed to be deserving a leech. It would be incredibly hard for you to go to one patient and say, you know what? From today on, I'll, check, I'll give the leeches only to 50% uh, because I want to check if leeches are right or wrong. If you had the gut intuition that leeches are good, and if you had a story about why leeches are, are so successful, you would basically apply them across the board. And as a consequence, you will have very little ability to figure out if leeches are actually good, good or bad. Now, the FDA came many years later and started forcing people to do experiments. Now, we can complain about the FDA, but, but the amazing thing is even with the FDA forcing people to do experiments, we still find all kinds of amazing things later. For example, this, 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 just this year, we found that the habit of giving kids cough syrup is not only not useful, but in fact it's dangerous. How can it be that it took 30 years of giving kids cough syrup to learn that this was dangerous? Or we just learned a few months ago that for most people, the efficacy of antidepressants, um, people, aside from the people who are very depressed, for the rest of the range, uh, antidepressants do as well as placebos. It's not that placebos don't do anything. Placebos do a lot. But the antidepressants for most people do just as well as placebos. You know, how, how is it that even with such rigorous testing, uh, we still have uh, these mistakes? Well, think about the fields of marketing and advertising when we don't have somebody that forces us to do experiment and, and rigorous testing. And, and as a consequence, I think we get uh, often very bad outcomes. And, and one of the problems, I think, in marketing is, is the issue of using focus groups. And the problem with focus groups is that the data is so fuzzy, you can, you can get basically a lot of things from it. You can't get everything, but you can get multiple things out of it. And the other thing is that you're just tapping people's intuitions. And to the extent that intuitions are wrong, which is often the case, uh, focus groups are not, are not very helpful. And so, so I think that will be my main, <clears throat> my main takeaway, is understand that we have limitations, we're fallible, we don't understand our fallibility. As a, as a consequence, we have to create a culture of testing uh, that is not just about one idea, but, but a, true, a true culture of testing. Uh, the other thing, you know, I, I used to teach marketing many years ago, 
in a joint program at MIT between the engineering school and the management school. <clears throat> and, and the students used to come to me and basically, these were engineering students like from Ford and, and NASA and so on, and they would usually come in the first class and say, hey, we just want to learn marketing to, to be able to fight with the marketing people. We're really not interested in this topic. And my usual answer for them was that if, if you don't do something that has to do with marketing, you're, you're wasting your company's time, you should just go home. Uh, because if you're doing something as wonderful as is technologically that nobody ever sees or experience or understand, that you're not really providing, providing any value. And, and what I realized after that was that for most people, marketing was something that came after the fact. The product was designed, it was built, it was finished, and now they called people in marketing to rescue, uh, to rescue the product. With the real approach, of course, is the opposite, is to, is to penetrate. Marketing needs to penetrate earlier in the design process and really bring the consumer perspective into the midst of it and figure out how do we take what people actually think, want, would be useful for them and bring it into the product. And, and by the way, let me just say last thing about behavioral economics. You know, the, in some sense, behavioral economics is very depressing. Like you look at human nature, and instead of thinking that we're wonderful and rational and capable, all of a sudden we're easily confused, emotional, vindictive, you know, don't know what we want, don't know how much we want to pay, and so on. So it could be a very depressing uh, approach from this perspective, very, very limited. But the, the good news of behavioral economics is that if you actually understand what people do badly on, you can think about how to improve things. And, and perhaps a good analogy is to think about the physical world. You know, when we design things for the physical world, uh, phones and shoes and chairs and computers and so on, we design things for people. We understand what people can do and can't do. We understand length of knees and, and elbows and so on. And we design products that fit, fit with people's physical ability and limitations. Somehow when it comes to people's cognitive ability, when we build cognitive products, things like retirement plans, annuity, healthcare, savings, and so on, we all of a sudden assume that people are perfectly rational. And I think if we took the lesson from the physical reality about our limitation, and we took it seriously also in the cognitive domain, and we said we might be limited cognitively as we are physically, let's think about how we design the world taking those into account. And, and I think that would be great because then we could really build a much, a much better world. And, and perhaps the best, the best example can, can be thought of in terms of the subprime mortgage crisis. So, so you know, for a long time, banks gave people uh, crazy loans. Now, from the bank perspective, they thought that people would take loans that they could afford. After all, who in their reasonable mind would take loans that they couldn't afford? Nobody, because nobody wants to be foreclosed. But the problem is that nobody could figure out what's the right amount of mortgage they should be taking. I mean, think for yourself. If I ask you today, what's the right amount of mortgage for you should be to, to take? What a difficult computation this is. So what do people do instead? They go to the bank and they say, how much would you lend me? And the bank said, we'll lend you a third of your income. Now, this was not necessarily what people should have borrowed. It's only what the bank offered to pay, to, to give them. But people borrowed the max. Now, <clears throat> a few years ago, we, 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 we took it a step further. And we offered people uh, interest-only mortgages, which much less restrictions. 
Now, at that point, I had a position in the Federal Reserve Bank, and I had a big fight with my friends in the Fed. For my friends in the Fed, interest-only mortgages were wonderful <clears throat> because they meant that people were more flexible. If you're buying a house for $400,000, and all of a sudden you were taking an interest-only mortgage, it meant that you could be much more flexible. It meant that you could every month decide whether to pay some of the interest or your credit card debt or something else. But from my perspective, if people cannot figure out what's the right amount for them to borrow, they would now just borrow more, stretch themselves more, and not necessarily increase any of their flexibility. And, you know, in retrospect, of course, that's what, that's what we saw. But it all comes to the point of people not having any idea how to compute what they should borrow and borrowing to the max. Now, imagine that we understood it a few years ago. And instead of giving people mortgage calculators that tell them how much they can borrow, tell them how much they should be borrowing, help people figure out the right amount to borrow. I think we would have circumvented some of these uh, tragedies that we have now. But a lot of brokers wouldn't have made their, uh, their percentage on the deal if we had done that. So. <clears throat> That's right. So, so, so there was a lot of problem with incentives there. But I think part of the issue and the weakest link was the fact that at the end of the day, the end consumer was, had no idea how to compute it, and they were taking way too much risk. Yeah. And by I the way, the bankers are not the ones who suffered from all of this. Yeah, I think we got another question from the floor. So, um, uh, Professor. Yes. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. We can hear you. Okay, great. Um, well, let me just say I was introduced to your book yesterday, and I – I've not had the uh, opportunity to read it, but I did go to your website and read the excerpts. And uh, before I ask you the question, I just wanted to mention that, you know, I just came out of working in the subprime mortgage industry. Uh -huh. And it was very interesting that you said that because, uh, uh, you, you know, you're absolutely correct. People thought that they don't have to think about how much they can afford by default, you know, whatever the bank was going to lend them, that would be their default purchase price because they assumed that the bank would be very conservative in their lending. Um, and so, you know, um, there was a total disincentive uh, for, for them to scale down. That's right. Uh, but uh, but, but I, I had a question about your decoy model. Yes. And, um, you know, you explained how that works really well with um, uh, pricing, um, you know, when uh, there are two or three or four or five different alternatives. How does the decoy model work in, say, perhaps, you know, the luxury goods industry when, when you know, th there is no price uh, to, to begin with? Which, so does, that, does, it work, does the decoy model work in reverse, where the higher your price is, um, you know, I'm not articulating myself correctly, but I I'm trying to understand how the decoy model works in the luxury market. Yeah, so, so I think the, your point is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is what do you do when you have a product that you really have no easy comparison to? Like you have a, a Prada bag, what are you going to compare it to? It's not a Gucci bag. These are not easy comparison. The, the decoy model rely on the fact that there's an easy comparison that makes it clear that one is strictly better than the other or clearly better than the other. In situations when you don't have those, this simple approach will not work. Now, a more complex approach is that in the mind of each consumer, there might be some dominated relationship. 
where somebody might prefer Prada to Gucci and somebody else might prefer Gucci to Prada. But you can't apply a general solution in a case where you don't have product that you can say ex ante which one is going to dominate, dominate the other. So I think that in the, in the luxury goods, it will be very difficult <clears throat> to apply that. I will, I will tell you one thing. I've, I've become interested in the, in the topic of, counterfact, uh, of uh, counterfeits, you know, when people fake stuff. And, and we just finished a study this week um, asking what happens if you have two levels of fake. So imagine you have a Gucci bag for $500. You have a fake for, for 50 What do people do? Well, at least in our study, most people say they'll go for the, for the expensive. So, sorry. A, a fake for 75 or a real thing for 500 Most people say they'll go for the real one for 500 <clears throat> But now what we do is we say you have not just a fake for 75 and a real for 500 you also have a fake for 25 So we added a really cheaper fake. And we say, you know, but it's fake, it's clearly fake. And very few people choose that cheaper fake. Uh, fake, but more people start choosing the $75 fake now. So, so what an upside down relationship. That's right. Basically, the, 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 it moves them to be willing to go in the fake because they, they go on the upper level of the fake. So they don't feel as bad about it all of a sudden. At least it's that's what we think is... I'm sorry. I was going to ask, is, is price arbitrary in that situation? In other words, if we had, in that same scenario, created a, um, I don't know, a, a, a fake for 475 would people then more overwhelmingly choose the real Gucci for 475 I would say we would create a fake for 500 Yeah, yeah. I think, I think if, if the fake would have got too close to the, to the real one, people would have gone for the real one. But I think the fact that there are multiple numbers in the fake allow people to feel good about buying fake because all of a sudden they feel that at least at the top of the range of the fake. By the way, we, we just started with this, so I'm not so sure about what exactly is happening. But, but I think there are some things like that happening in the, um, in the luxury market. We just don't understand them yet. I think we have another question. Uh, um, have you finished that thought? Yes. Okay, okay thanks. Um, this is Sherry. Uh, in Austin, gas right now is about 375 to 380 a gallon, and yet um, people are still having no problem whatsoever paying like a dollar 69 for uh, less than a quart of water at um, the specialty stores. Explain concern over gas price when, if you actually read the label on the majority of water, it's not even spring water. It's yeah. really tap water that's been so to, so to speak purified. What's the rationale on that? Yes. So, so first of all, the water that has been purified is sometimes better than than spring waters. Just so you know, the the problem with spring water is it's regulated by the FDA, not by the EPA and the tap water are regulated by the EPA, and it turns out the EPA has more strict guidelines. So in fact, in, in many cases, tap water is healthier than, than spring water. Spring water can have a much higher level of arsenic and all kinds of other things. That it's, it's an incredible problem. Um, now, in terms of the cost, the cost of water, I think it all comes to relative comparison. 
People compare the the cost of water to other things that come in similar sized bottles, namely bottles of Coke. And they basically say, what do I rather, have Coke with some sugar and, and coloring, or would I like water, which is slightly healthier at the same cost? So it's a very natural comparison that we've given people, and as a consequence, they're willing to pay that. When you come to gasoline, the issue with gasoline has to do with what we compare gasoline to. And we compare gasoline to what we remember the price of gasoline to be. By the way, the, the, the story with gasoline is particularly interesting because the shopping process is so unique. Think about it. What other category do you buy once a week and do you stand next to it for five minutes staring at the price and looking at it increasing all the time? Right? It's very unique. Um, in fact, the similar things like it, like electricity and gas bill in our home, are hidden. We never see the meters. But imagine that the meter was brought into the middle of your living room and you would observe it all the time. You would also be quite upset with the increase of those, of those prices and you might actually remember uh, what it was a year ago, a year ago and so on. Now, Does this have to do with, uh, you mentioned uh, explicit explicit cost and implicit cost. Is there some kind of relationship here with what you're talking about right now, with what we see versus what we don't see? <clears throat> Absolutely. There is, there is this notion we call the pain of paying. And the pain of paying is the idea that when you consume and experience at the same time, the experience is less enjoyable. So consider the following example. Imagine I had a restaurant and I figured out that people on average take 25 bytes and pay $25. That means that the, the cost, the average cost, is a dollar per byte. And one day I came to you and I said, I have a deal for you. Today is half price. Not only is it half price, but I will stand next to you and I will charge you only for the bytes you take. So every bite you take, I'll charge you 50 cents. So here will be a meal. I'll stand next to you and I will mark a tick mark in my notebook every time you take a bite and at the end I'll charge you 50 cents per bite. This will be a very economic meal for you, but I expect it will be incredibly unpleasant because every bite you will take, you will, you will think to yourself, is this worth it or not? Is this 50 cents? Is this bite worth the 50 cents or not? The consequence, you'll be very unhappy. This is basically because when we consume and pay at the same time, consumption is less enjoyable. Now, with gasoline, we see the prices accumulating. Now, we don't exactly drive and see the prices, but it's close enough, and we pay in close enough proximity that it makes the whole experience more unpleasant. In the case of gasoline, and in the case of electricity, and in fact, in the case of credit cards, we don't feel this pain of paying. In fact, one of the greatest things of credit cards is that they separate consumption from experience from payment, and as a consequence, they make the event less unpleasant for us. You know, think about going to an expensive restaurant and at the end of the meal, paying with cash or with credit card. Credit card will cause you much less agony. Why? Because it's not really clear when you're paying. You're not really paying at that moment, and when you get the the bill later, you've already paid for it, and it's it's among a bunch of other expenses, so you don't have this this pain of paying. So that, I think, is a huge determinant for why we're so obsessed with the price of gasoline. In fact, from a rational perspective, we're way too obsessed with the price of gasoline. Uh, there, was, there was a story about a guy I was on, on NPR interviewed together with him. 
He was a guy who bought a Cadillac Escalade. I think it was a Cadillac Escalade um, maybe 10 months ago. He bought it for $71,000. And when the price cost, the, the price for gasoline passed the $4, he was at the dealer ready to sell it and buy a new small car. Now, because everybody at that moment was so unhappy with big gas guzzler and everybody was so concerned and the media was full of stories about $4 per gallon, uh, this guy got $31,000 for his car. He basically lost $40,000. Now, in reality, the price, the price he paid um, was $41,000, but and he bought it at a time when the price of gasoline was three fifty. So the price of gasoline went up by let's say seventy five cents, um, and if he drives, you know, fifteen thousand miles a year, it will mean another seven hundred fifty dollars a year. Does this justify losing forty one thousand? Not to mention losing more money on the new on the new car he was buying. Of course not. But he was so overzealous, so overexcited about the price of gasoline that he made this terrible, terrible decision. I, I, thank you. I have one more question. I'm going to then pass to my Sure. Do you have – how would you suggest that lawyers set their fees? Since I'm sitting next to one, and uh, <laughs> a lot of people have an aversive experience when they get billed by a lawyer. What can they do about that? Yeah. So there's actually um, – there's a chapter in, in my book on something I call social norms versus financial norms. And it's a question of what kind of relationship do you have, want to have with your customers. And the idea is that the more direct per payment the relationship is, the less relationship it is. And I think basically lawyers lose a lot of uh, credibility. <clears throat> they lose a lot of repeated customers. You know, if you charge me $300 per hour and somebody else would charge me 280 I would leave and go to them. And in fact, it's not only uh, doesn't create any loyalty, um, it, it creates a lot of uh, mistrust and agony, not to mention that lawyers, by the way, spend, I think, anywhere between 10 to 15% of their time just billing, <clears throat> which is not an activity they enjoy, and of course, an activity they waste, that waste everybody's time and resources. And I think a much better uh, model is to create a model of retainer or prepayment or some other some other approaches, and I'm happy to tell you that there are some lawyers who are actually working on, on, on these models. So, so I think it's, it's generally uh, could happen. The second thing is, of course, about lawyers cheating and exaggerating their, their hours. Um, I know there's a lawyer there, but, but you, know, you know, you probably know all the jokes about uh, how, how lawyers overcharge for their time. By the way, it's not just lawyers overcharge for their time. It's, it turns out it's incredibly easy to cheat. It turns out people cheat a lot. A lot of people cheat. Um, but people cheat just by little in small things. And that's exactly the case for lawyers, where it's very easy to talk for 10 minutes and charge for 15, or pick a call for 5 minutes and charge for 10, <clears throat> and so on and forth. Round things in a way that is comfortable for them. Not because do, they're bad address, people. You do address that in the book. That's right. Um, and, do we, um, go ahead. Did you have another point? <clears throat> and... And one of the things I'm, I'm proposing with lawyers is that instead of charging people for their time, reporting time, they would charge people dollars. And I think if they made the list in terms of money, they would actually feel less comfortable with, with exaggerating a little bit and would actually be more honest. 
I, I, I'm observing the audience in the room and listening to what you're talking, and I, I, I see something that I'm going to call the game show phenomenon, which is people who are actually in the position to make a decision are, are going to be more irrational than the audience watching them. I've seen the audience in the room snicker a lot at a lot of the decisions and the things that you've you've seen people do through your studies, and I wanted to know if you've ever if you've ever addressed that like the observer versus the actor sort of phenomenon. Yeah, um, so 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 there's old old research in in social psychology called the actor observer uh, discrepancy, and and basically the, the idea there is that we we have a tendency to view ourselves as reasonable and rational and making decisions because we are good and if something bad happens to us it's because of circumstances while other people are fools and if something happened to them it's because not of circumstances or bad luck it's because they are idiots or or or, or misguided um, so that's kind of one one basic issue it's also called the fundamental attribution error when we attribute good things to us and bad things to luck when it comes to us and to other people, we're attributing <coughs> bad, bad things to them and good things uh, because of luck. Um, the, the other point is a point about emotions. So if you think about a game show, somebody is sitting there, they're under stress. They're feeling <coughs> emotions. And you as an observer just don't feel those emotions. And, and as a consequence, they're in a different state. And they're in such a different state that it's hard to imagine how differently they're feeling. By the way, the same thing happens when you're in love. Um, if you're in love and, and you know, the person you're, you're in love is next to you, uh, you, you can't imagine ever falling out of love with them. And as a consequence, you can make all kinds of crazy decisions. Uh, you know, that's what uh, Las Vegas have all these um, little places to get married. <clears throat> um, it's the outside perspective in this case that is much more objective and often much, much better. So, so emotions really get the best out of us very often. It's very easy to get emotional about things. I'm not just talking about crying or happy. I'm also, also talking about stressed and confused and, and uh, motivated. And those can actually make us uh, make much more dramatic mistakes. But for the outside people who are judging us, because they don't have these emotions, it's easy to pass judgment. But in fact, they would probably act just the same if they were in the same situation. Um, thank you for that response. Very, very insightful. The emotion, I think, is a, is a bigger aspect to it than I think I had imagined ahead of time. I, I have one more quick question. Uh, years ago, I, I recognized how I would, I would drive across town to save the same amount of money on a larger ticket item uh, that I would for a smaller ticket item, say, like, uh, you know, uh, a gallon of milk somewhere that might be 25 cents cheaper or a dollar cheaper as opposed to saving a, a $5 on a $100 suit or something like that. Uh -huh. And it, it drove me to think, what if there was a website that I could go to where I could do a comparative cost analysis and, and sort of have a self-awareness moment where I'd be like, understanding that, that I make different decisions based on different amounts that I might be saving or losing depending on how much I'm spending uh -huh. and where, where I would try to scrimp and save 25 cents or blow $25 for convenience sake. And if you think a utility like that might be useful for people and if you think they would use it. Yeah. 
<clears throat> so, so first of all, the, the, the main point you're bringing is the fact that people, many people think about money in relative terms. Uh, we think about it as percentages. So that's why you might look at the tomatoes in the supermarket and think carefully about whether to buy the ones for 220 or 210 But when it comes to uh, upgrading the leather, the, the seats in your car to leather, and it's another $2,000, you might make a decision on it very quickly because you're already spending 30000 and 2000 in relative terms look, look small in comparison. Um, so that's, that's the problem with, with, with money. Now, in terms of... Um, People and, and spending habits, <clears throat> I think that one of the things we need is something like home remedies for savings. The, the fact is that it's very hard to save. Uh, the world is out there to tempt us to, to spend, and people don't know what works and what doesn't work. And I think in the same way that people have, you know, share recipe and uh, home remedies and all kinds of other things, it would be good to, to know what, what seems to be working for people. And, you know, saving is, is a learning process. If you told me now to cut $1,000, I don't know what, what I would cut. I have a couple of ideas of a few things I could start with. But it's really a learning process, trying to cut something, see how life goes with it worth it, not worth it, try something else, and figure out over a long time what works for me and what doesn't. Where are the traps? What am I overspending on? And I think it will be of great help to create some kind of home remedies that would get people to share insight of what worked for them, what didn't work for them, what process for learning, what activities, and so on. That, I think, would just be uh, of great help. But won't that uh, fail the expectation? If people expect something to work for them, won't it work well for them? Um, so so it's, it's, that's, that's a good question. What, how do expectations work on this? Because we know expectations are, are a big, big, big source. I think the issue is to, uh, in the way that you portray these things. So you don't say uh, something like the self-help book. They say, do this and, and you'll lose 10, 10 pounds or do this and, and this will happen. But just say, here are some things that work for some people try those and see how they work for you mm-hmm. and then report and then try something else. Well, um, how are we doing on time, Dan? Do I have time for one, one more question for you? Sure. 70% of the, the uh, participants act irrationally in any of one of them. What can you tell me about the other 30%, those miscreants that seem to act rationally? Do you, do you know anything about why they're acting rationally and, and, and is it aliens? <laughs> so, so first of all, <clears throat> it's a good question, and we're, we're planning to study something like this soon. And, and the first question is, are the people who act irrationally the same people across different decisions? And, and the answer is we don't know. We don't know the answer to this. Uh, we don't know if different people behave irrationally in different domains, or there are some people who are just <clears throat> generally, generally more, more rational. Uh, we do have one particular piece of evidence that suggests that there is some people who behave more rationally in one domain. Now, let's, let me ask you a simple math problem. Are you ready? Ready. Okay, I want everybody to listen to this and then think about the answer is in your mind, but, but really say it in your mind before, before I say the answer. Here is the simple math problem. A baseball bat and a baseball ball cost together $1.10. The bat costs a dollar more than the ball. The question is, how much does the ball cost? 
Okay, quickly, I'll just repeat it. A baseball bat and a baseball ball cost together $1.10. The bat costs a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Everybody has it? <coughs> Everybody has an answer? Yes. Okay. So, can you, can you just get people to tell you what the answer is? Uh, you guys want to make a, a guess? I'm seeing no. five. I'm seeing a, 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 the price of the ball is five cents. Ten cents. Ten cents. I'm hearing ten cents. My guess was five cents. Any other any other options? Okay, five and ten. How many people chose five and how many ten? Um, looks like we got about uh, half the audience. Half the audience chose five. And um, um, half ten, I guess it's about half and half. Okay, so so of course five is the right answer. Uh, it's five and a dollar five is a dollar ten together, and the difference is a dollar. Uh, but what happened with this question is that because the number ten appears so many times, the first gut reaction of almost everybody is to say ten cents. And now the question is, after people say 10 cents to themselves, do they go back and check themselves and say, well, if 10 cents and the bat is a dollar more than the ball, it will be 10 cents and $1.10 together, $1.20 doesn't work out, and then, and then go back to it. Now, it turns out that this question, and a few like it, that basically give you first gut reaction is wrong and check whether you go and correct it. Because, by the way, everybody can compute it. It's just a question, do you bother to go back and check your your intuition correlates quite well with a few irrational tendencies, uh, mostly in terms of how much we discount the future and how much risk we're willing to take. Uh, but it doesn't seem to be related to any other irrational behaviors. But the people who um, answered five cents, uh, statistically speaking, will be more rational when it comes to time discounting, discounting the future, and when it comes to uh, taking risk. That's the only general finding we have so far. Actually, Dan, uh, I, have, I have one question. This is the joy. Um, so we, you're, you're talking to a group of, of entrepreneurs here. Um, and so one of the things that we face is uh, most of our friends that, we, that are not entrepreneurs live a very different reality than we do. Yeah. Um, you know, they They've got the jobs and they've got the, the lifestyle and, and so on and so forth, and they're, they're kind of living an alternative reality. And I think part of what makes our group appealing to us is that we, we, we all subscribe to the same reality that, you know, we call it this valley of death stage, for example, <laughs> where, where, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking we're highly irrational because we, we, we talk about the stages of entrepreneurship, and we're willing to live in this stage called the valley of death, um, because we know that that's kind of a natural consequence of entrepreneurship, um, mm -hmm. and you've got to soldier on through that, that really hard stage, whereas many perhaps rational people would say, hey, why don't you quit and stop doing what you're doing, you know? Um, so I guess my question to you is, is, is how do you square that, uh, the, those two <coughs> populations, and, and what, recommend, what recommendation do you have for, um, for, for us about how we should view our own experience of, of being entrepreneurs? Oof, that's 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 tough. So so first of all, I I love entrepreneurships. I think I think anybody who is not starting a company at some stage of his life is missing out. Um, it's it's a fantastic uh, educational, enlightening experience, and and just working for a living is is uh, you know often not that exciting. 
Um, so, so from that perspective, I think the trade-off is right. And you know, I try to encourage all my undergrads to uh, do startups rather than going and, and, and take jobs. Um, in terms, in terms of, um, in terms of how to think socially about that, and and how to compare yourself to the people who have uh, stable jobs is I, I think you should emphasize for yourself the kind of things that you enjoy and they just don't have. You know I mean, so, so think about the cost and the benefits and clearly there are costs, um, mostly, mostly lifestyle, but, but the benefits are incredible. It's, it's uh, you know, in many cases, it's, it's like uh, it's, it's a unique, wonderful experience. Right, because yeah, I mean, I think that's 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 sort of also an interesting thing because I think it, it does boil down to this notion of, of what experience are you having, and we, we've had another whole side discussion even within uh, the Bootstrap group about the fact that in Austin, um, one of the things that we do really well is we create experiences out of everything. Um, if you if you ever come visit us, well, you know, we'll we'll take you to Alamo Draft House where you you don't just watch a movie, but you experience you go for an experience, you know, mm-hmm. or you go um, you, so there's this whole notion of experiential the experience that you're having this unique or interesting experience. And maybe that even relates back to the Starbucks issue, the Starbucks example that you were talking about where people are coming in to have that experience in that store rather than just buy the, the cup of coffee. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think think about, you know, so the, the answer is basically think about your job in, in, in broader terms that, that goes beyond income. Right. Well, um, I guess we're at the end, Dan. It's been an interesting hour plus. Thank you so much for, for being too. part of this. My Was there pleasure. anything you wanted to add to um, cap, the, uh, cap the evening? Uh, no, I will just say, you know, we're doing all kinds of studies on our website if you want to, to join in. And actually, we, um, if you can encourage more people to join and be participants in our, in our studies, it will be incredibly, incredibly useful because we're trying to uh, reach out beyond the population we have access to and do do things that are kind of on on broader scale. So it would be wonderful if you could uh, help us with this. And then beside of that, if you are ever interested in running some experiments uh, and and you want uh, help designing them and you want to share the results with us, uh, I would be delighted. Awesome. Well, again, thanks very much, and we will say good night from Austin and Bootstrap Marketing. Okay, thank you very much. Take care. Thanks for listening to Bootwrap. I'm Brian Massey. This content is copyright 2006, Bootstrap Network, all rights reserved. Our thanks to Charlie Crow and the Podsafe Music Network for our theme music.